want to thank Jason and the worship team for leading us to the throne room of God this morning. Before we open the Word of God today, uh, we have a special guest who will share some uh, great stories about the, the work of the Gideons and the triumph of the, the work of God uh, to the nation. So uh, I, I had a chance this morning to sit down and, and get to know uh, Jim Lerner and his wife, uh, Chris, and uh, what a joy it is to, to have you here and your friends also serving with the Gideons uh, in the service. And so would you give uh, Jim Lerner a warm Christ Fellowship welcome? Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Good morning, and it's great to be here with my wife and uh, the Bimas that are here to share with you what the largest mission organization in the world, what God is doing through us. And I'm so glad that you can be part of it this morning. It was uh, exciting to see the girls honored this morning and uh, from graduating for high school. We have a grandson that's graduating from high school. And you have two young men that are going to be graduating from high school. And you prayed for them. But let me tell you, that should be just the first prayer. You need to keep praying for them. Uh, two twins, Kevin and Keith, wrote their testimony into the Gideons. And they went to church when they were growing up. They were very close. And then when they went away to college, they kind of fell away from the church and got involved in the world and everything. And one day when Kevin was walking up campus to go to his class, he could see a long walkway. And there were some men along there handing out things and asking, would you like to have a Bible? And Kevin says, oh, no, no, no. And he's walking along and he sees more of them. And he goes, why don't I just take one and then I won't have to be bothered by the rest of the guys. So he said, yes, I'll take one. So he took one of the college New Testaments that was handed to him. And it was a nice day and he sat down and he started at the very beginning at Matthew in the New Testament. Started reading, read right through, missed first class, kept reading, kept reading, kept reading, and started getting kind of cooler and a little darker. He went back to his dorm, kept reading, kept reading, and he says, about midnight, he came to the back of the book that has the plan of salvation, and he read the prayer, signed his name, and accepted Christ. He was so excited, he thought, you know, I, maybe I should go down and tell my brother what I just did. So he's running down the hall, and he knocks on the door, and Keith opens the door, and when he opens the door, he goes, guess what? <laughs> Keith had also received one of the Gideon New Testaments, and today, both of them are actively serving the Lord. It's exciting to be part of this ministry that has over 300,000 uh, men and women as members. One of the things that drew me to the uh, ministry when I felt the Lord's calling is the fact that the members of the Gideons, we pay all the overhead. We have annual dues so that when people give to this ministry 100%, I don't know of any other organization that does that, it goes strictly to the printing and the distribution of the Word of God. Right now we're in 200 countries around the world in over 100 languages. And uh, it's exciting to see what the Lord is doing, the many, many different uh, testimonies that come in. As some of you may have found out, we put Bibles in hotels, motels, and hospitals. We give them at military centers, universities. Uh, one of the big ministries is in jails and prisons. You know, we have over 200,000 incarcerated in the United States, but not just in the United States. 
Paula found herself in a violent relationship of heavy alcohol. She was abused every day, and so were her children. And one time, she tried to protect her children, took vengeance upon herself, and what she did uh, ended her up in prison. While she was there, people would call her names, the women, and look down on her. She said nobody ever called her by her name. She called on the Aborigine God to help her, and she said the help never came. One day she was in her cell. She fell asleep. She had a dream that lions were attacking her, and she was running from these lions. And when she got ahead of them at the end, there was a person standing there. And she said it was Jesus. She woke up from the dream, kind of, you know, what's, what's going on? And on her bed was a Bible. It was opened to the book of Daniel, to the passage where God closed the mouth of the lions. And she said, it wasn't earmarked. She said, how that happened, she doesn't know. But it touched her so much that for what she could do at that point, she just said, I give my heart to you, Jesus the one that closed the mouth of the lions. She says, all because a person took the time to put a Bible in that jail cell. It saved my life. And I'm forever changed. Thank you, Gideons, for what you do. Last year, we handed out 91 million copies of the Word of God. So I think I read somewhere that that's like two Bibles every time your heart beats. So I thought, now if I'm doing aerobics, maybe more Bibles are going out. So that's a lot of Bibles. And we share oftentimes testimonies of what God is doing overseas and other countries. But I want you to know, with you just allowing us to share this morning, um, you're part of a tremendous ministry that's also active right here in Whatcom County. The Gideons have two camps. We have one in northern Whatcom County. The dividing line is the Smith Road. And then there's the Bellingham Camp. Our camp, I want you to know, last year we handed out 286 New Testaments to high school and middle school students. And this is great. 2,926 little New Testaments at the fair in Linden. So if any of you go to the fair this year, make sure stop by our booth. We're right on the way to all of the rides and everything. And we gave out... 1,818 of these up at Western. You know, we hear a lot about universities and things. We hear about all the bad things up at Western. I want you to know there are some good college groups up there at Western. And 1,800 kids got a Bible. And that's exciting. Also, kind of maybe something to put in the back of your mind. Two churches in Ferndale had um, parking lot parties on Halloween. And they opened up the trunks and they gave out the candy and the kids went to those two churches. And the Gideons were there. We were there with orange New Testaments and we handed them out and we handed out 500. And it ended up that parents started coming over and saying, can I have one of those? So you can see we're active not only around the world, but right here in Whatcom County. And it's exciting to see what God is doing. And um, there's three ways that you could be involved in this ministry. Uh, The first and the most important is to pray. You already have people praying right now for your pastor as he's going to break the Word of God for you. I wish that you would add the Gideons to your missions list. You should be praying daily for Pastor Dave, for this fellowship, for your outreach 
to reach the lost for Jesus Christ and for your missionaries. And right in there, the Gideons. Secondly, if any of you just feel maybe a tug either today or later and think, you know, maybe God's calling me to the ministry of the Gideons. I want you to know, pastors don't have to worry about that because all of the Gideons that we know are very active in our own local church as serving as Gideons. And it's exciting to be part of this ministry. Excuse me. And thirdly, if God puts it on your heart, we do have a table back there where we'd love to talk to you this morning. And... Um, You can give a love gift offering over and above your commitment to this fellowship and 100% will be used to purchase Bibles. This one costs us $5 to print that goes in hotels, motels, and hospitals. The one that we use on distributions, this is $1.40. We also have a free gift for you. (coughs) Excuse me. The Gideons are catching up to technology, so we have an app. If you have a smartphone... We have a Bible app. There's over a thousand different languages of the Word of God. I like listening to Psalms in Hebrew and Punjabi. So many languages are there. Uh, Your kids can tell you how to put it on your phone. And uh, just make sure that you're where you can, um, where you have Wi-Fi because it does use data for downstreaming. I'd like to close with uh, one more testimony, and it's a video. If we could have that now. So, uh, other than, you know, hotel Bibles, I didn't really have much interaction with the Gideons International until uh, I was deployed. And uh, we picked up, uh, you know, some uh, little Gideon Testaments uh, that, you know, had the little cool camouflage cover on them at the USO, uh, right? And, and most of us carried around uh, these New Testaments with us, right, in our, our uh, left breast pocket because it was one closest to our heart. When I was on deployment, I actually carried one of those little testaments around with me too. I have the very one I carried with me my entire time in Iraq. It's a little worn, covers a little faded out, a little folded over, but uh, this is one I carried with me my entire deployment in Iraq. And uh, and and being a Gideon, I actually had the, the great privilege of actually giving out some of these testaments to our to our young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marine on the station over there. Uh, the first time I really had an opportunity to see the impact of the Gideon ministry is uh, when I was in Barlakaleg, uh, uh, in Kunar province, Afghanistan. Our convoy was uh, going down the road. Somebody fired an RPG at our truck. And as this rocket was flying toward us, I just called the name Jesus. You know, uh, I didn't know anything else to do. And so this rocket that was that was coming toward us, I don't, I don't know to this day if it... You know, if, the, if it hit a tree branch or whatever, but this rocket that was heading right toward us suddenly was deflected and it went over our head. And the Afghan interpreter that was in the truck, he looked at me and he says, well, who's, who's this Jesus that you just called on? And, and I said, I'm glad you asked. And uh, I had a chance to pull out this New Testament that was given to me uh, and share with him who Jesus was. And when I shared that with him, this same Afghan soldier started reading this New Testament. And before I know it, dozens of Afghan soldiers every single night would, would sit around the guard tower 
while he was reading God's word to them and translated it to them in their language. That's exciting. One New Testament can reach so many people. So from college campuses to Australia to Afghanistan to right here in Whatcom County, God promised in Isaiah 55:11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Thank you, Pastor, for your time. I know it's precious. Thank you. And if you have any questions about the Gideons, we'd love to talk to you after the service. God bless you. Jim, thank you so much. It's uh, an honor to have you and your wife and your friends from the Gideons with us this morning. And it's always exciting to hear uh, what the Word of God is doing around the world. Speaking of the Word of God, I want to invite you to turn in God's Word this morning to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. And while you're turning, and before we stand to read the Word of God this morning, I have a few questions for you. The first question is, do you love the Word of God? Three of you. Let me try it again. Do you love the Word of God? Do you believe the Word of God? Do you accept the Word of God? Are you willing to submit to the Word of God? Even when it says things that are really, really difficult... How come it's getting lower and lower and lower? It's really enthusiastic there for a minute. I kind of went, whoa. We have some things to wrestle with this morning. And uh, I'm excited uh, to preach this morning as I am each week. But this week uh, will pose some, some very interesting challenges. And I pray that you will leave encouraged and refreshed and emboldened as a result of the time we spend together. We stand with me as we read Psalm chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You... Hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with a favor as with a shield. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, it is so humbling to uh, stand together as your people, uh, to read your word. 
And as I mentioned in the previous questions, we want to affirm together that we, we believe it, we love it, we accept it, and we submit to it, even when it poses uh, very difficult challenges. Sometimes things are hard to accept. But God, we uh, stand in submission to your word this morning. And I ask that by your spirit that you would do a, a, a special work in our hearts. I pray for those especially who have come with uh, deep needs and are hurting in, in ways that are, are far too difficult to even understand. And so I pray that your word would do a mighty work today, that we, your people, would be encouraged. And if there's anyone here that is not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that as we spend time in your word, that by the power of your spirit, that you would, you would draw someone to yourself, that you would perform this, this sovereign work of grace so that someone would leave this morning a child of God. We trust you to do these great things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Psalm chapter 5, like many of the Psalms, is a prayer. Last week I offered a, a very important definition of prayer by one of my heroes, John Bunyan, the British pastor who was in prison for over 12 years in his life, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, and he says this, Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ, in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to His Word, for the good of the church, with submission and faith to the will of God. This is a prayer from the pen of King David. It is a prayer that the psalmist prays, as he often does in the midst of his enemies, in the midst of persecution. And verses 9 and 10 help us to see a, a very brief snapshot of the enemies that face David. He says in verse 9 and 10, in so many words, that these enemies are liars, that these people are destructive, that they are ruthless, that they use their tongues for evil purposes, that they are loaded down with guilt, that they are loaded with sin. And then he concludes his argument... And his lament by saying that these enemies have rebelled against God. It is no surprise when I say that one of the greatest needs of our day is to directly apply the word of God to our daily challenges. Perhaps this morning you have a, a health challenge. Perhaps it's a, a, an emotional challenge. Maybe it's a financial challenge. It's a job challenge. It's a re relational challenge. All of us need to, to take the truth of the Word of God and directly apply it to our lives. Now, it's very interesting because most of us have probably never been in a situation that resembles what David faces. First of all, I think I can safely say that most of us, and probably all of us, will never find ourselves in a position where we can say, I serve as king. That's something we just can't relate to. Most of us probably cannot relate to the political turmoil, even though we are in the midst of a, of a massive political turmoil in our country. But most of us cannot relate to the personal political turmoil that King David faces. However, 
Most of us, if not all of us, have wrestled with discouragement, with loneliness, with a a lack of direction, with persecution, with people, as we learned last week, who seek to discredit us, with with, uh, uh, no idea of where we are to go in life. That's the directionless phase that I mentioned before is is we have high school seniors and young people who face a a future in front of them. Some of them are probably wondering, I have no idea what the future holds. And so with these high school seniors and the rest of us, we stand together and say we are indeed a needy people, are we not? We have so many needs. Well, the title of the message this morning is cry out to God. And this morning I want to help you to become better acquainted with the God that King David cries out to. And there's three cries that we that we see set forth in this passage. First we find that David cries out to the God who hears. He cries out to the God who hears. Look once again at verses 1 to 3. He says And he prays, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. This is the God who hears. The the God that, that David approaches he realizes that God hears his prayers. Now, there's three aspects that we see and that we find in this passage about the God who hears. Verse 1 tells us this, God listens to our prayers. In verse 1, David says, consider my groaning. That Hebrew word translated groaning literally means to meditate out loud. It means to murmur. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah gives us this this beautiful and painful example of what it means to be a man who is groaning. He says this, that he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. My suspicion is that many of you can relate to Jeremiah. That you have simply forgotten what it looks like to be happy. He continues in Lamentations chapter 3. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it is bowed down within me. Now, I want to have you look again at Psalm chapter 5, verse 1, as David prays out, Give ear to my words, O Lord. And we began to look at this last week, and that is the fact that God pays attention to David's prayers is astounding. I want you to wrestle with that. I want you to, to, to meditate on that, that, that it is an astounding thing that God, the God of the universe, listens to your prayers. That he listens to my prayers. And that he listens to the prayers of his people all around the world. Several years ago, I had the, the pleasure and the opportunity of reading a book by 
uh, a man that I greatly respect. I've had a chance to meet him several times. His name is Stephen Lawson, and this is the first volume in a series of books that he wrote entitled Foundations of Grace, A Long Line of Godly Men. And as I completed the book, I was, I was so struck by this book. I was so encouraged by it as I just devoured it. I decided to do something that is not a, a typical thing for me. I sat down to my computer and I wrote Dr. Lawson a letter. It was about a two-page letter, and I just I thanked him for the time and the, the hundreds of hours that he had put in and invested in this book and thanked him for encouraging me so much with the book. Well, I, I sent it off. About two weeks later, my secretary in Legrand got a hold of me on the intercom, and she said, Pastor Dave, and I said, yes. And she said, it's Dr. Stephen Lawson on the line for you. And I said, come again? She said, it's Dr. Stephen Lawson on the line for you. He's calling from Little Rock, Arkansas. And after I fell off my chair and composed myself and got back on again, I got on the line and I said, hello, may I help you? And he said, well, hi, David. He's got this strong southern accent. He says, it's, it's Stephen Lawson. And I said, well, wow, it's so good to hear from you, Dr. Lawson. And he proceeded to to offer thanks for the letter that I had written. He says, you have no idea how encouraged I was with your letter. He says, what you need to understand is my father is in Tennessee right now, and he's dying of cancer, and he's on his deathbed. And I was so encouraged with your letter that I just sent a fax of the letter to my dad to read before he is ushered into the presence of the Lord. It's an amazing story, but the fact that I want to stress is this. I couldn't believe that Steve Lawson picked up the phone and called little moi. I just couldn't believe it. Now, think outside the box. How amazing is it that the God of the universe listens to your prayers? He listens to your prayers. David's prayer highlights the fact that God is a personal God. You see, the Bible tells us this. God is not aloof. God is not tired. God is not asleep. God is always attentive to the prayers of his people. Indeed, he is a personal God. We learn in Isaiah chapter 40 that this God tends his flock like a shepherd. That he gathers the lambs in his arms. That he carries them in his bosom. And he gently leads those with young. We learn additionally that this God, this personal God, gives power to the faint. Are you faint this morning? You just feel like, I'm just going to give up. We serve a God who gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths grow faint and weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This personal God, we learn in Matthew chapter 11, says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, says our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God not only listens to our prayers, God pays attention to our prayers. Verse 2, the psalmist says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. That little phrase, give attention, means to listen attentively. It means to, to pay attention, to be alert, to accept information as true, and to respond appropriately to it. And so David asked God, he utters this prayer request. He asked God to pay attention to the sound of his cry. That is a loud, literally a loud, guttural utterance. Have you ever prayed to God like that? I know I have. It goes something like this. God, I have no idea what to pray. God, I have no idea to re- how to reach out to my friend. God, I have no idea how to walk alongside my, my friend or my spouse or my son or my daughter in this time of persecution. Yet we know this. God pays attention to our prayers. Second Chronicles 7 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Many years ago, I had a chance to, to go to a guitar workshop. Many of you have probably never had a chance to go to a guitar workshop. It's one of my all-time favorite things to do. A guitar workshop is like going to a concert where you can ask questions. I mean, it is unbelievable. So I remember one workshop I went to, Phil Kagey, one of the greatest guitar players of all time. So he plays this, this amazing song, right? And he gets to the end of the song, and someone raises his hand. He says, Uncle Phil, that's what we call him, Uncle Phil, I have the music to that song, and I, I have tried for months to figure that song out. Can you give me some pointers? Now, you have to understand, Phil Kagey is an incredibly humble individual. But you also have to understand that Phil Kagey only has four fingers. And so he held up his hand like this, and he said, Well, I'm looking down at you. You have five fingers. I only have four. It should be easy for you. (laughs) In another guitar workshop that I went to, a a Christian man by the name of Doyle Dykes, he played this, this amazing concert, and we had a chance to interact with Doyle back and forth, and he proceeded to tell a story that illustrates the point I'm trying to make now. When he was a younger guitar player, he, he woke up one morning before he, he traveled to, to play another concert, and he went in to pray with his daughter, Heidi. And he said, now, Heidi, just a young girl, four or five years of age, he said, Heidi, what would you like to, to ask God for today? And he was shocked when she simply had one prayer request, and she said, Daddy, I want to pray that the Lord would bring me a white rose. And he kind of patted her on the head and said, oh, that's, that's cute. And, and went on their way. And he didn't think anything of it. Well, later that evening, in another city, he played a concert. And at the end of the concert, an older woman approached Doyle Dykes. And she said, Doyle, I, I don't normally do this, but I, I just wanted to give you a gift. And it was this piece of paper, and it was wrapped up. And he said, oh, thank, thank you so much. And he literally, he thought, as he shared with the group at the concert, the workshop, he said he thought it was a sandwich. And he was so happy that this lady had had made him a sandwich. Well, later he got to his hotel room and he sat down in his bed and he opened up his package thinking it was a sandwich. 
And it was a white rose that this woman had picked from her garden. Now, that's a simple story. But it illustrates this. He simply patted his daughter on the head and said, oh, that's a nice prayer request. But when Heidi asked for a white rose, God was listening. He was attentive. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. What if God had chosen to not answer that prayer? He still listens and he's still attentive and he may have chosen to say no or wait to that prayer request. The fact is this, he's listening, he pays attention. And number three, God is eager to hear our prayers. Look at verse three. David prays, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The psalmist at this point understands the great privilege of prayer. And so he approaches God first thing in the morning. And notice how he shifts here from a request for God to hear his prayers to an affirmation of this great reality. In verses 1 and 2, we hear him crying out. In verse 3, we see this affirmation and we learn that God is eager to hear the prayers of his people. I want to offer, by way of practical application, three very basic principles to, to put in your discipleship toolkit, if you will. First, I want to encourage you to ask for help often. Ask for help often. That is to say, you go to prayer and you, you say to God, God, I need your assistance. How often in our Christian lives do we go it alone? How often in our Christian lives, when we need help, do we get on our cell phones and call our, our friend or call someone else for assistance when the first person we should cry out to is God? James chapter 4 is a, is a very convicting passage. It has been ever as long as I can remember, even as a young boy. It goes like this. You have not because you ask not. And I would challenge you with this, that as we move forward as a church family, that we begin to become more bold in our prayers. That we ask God to bring people to Christ's fellowship, that people would hear the gospel and respond favorably to the gospel. That God would do a mighty work here in our little community. Number two, remember that God loves to hear the prayers of his people. God does not begrudgingly hear our prayers. Rather, our prayers bring him great delight. And this is one of the ultimate tensions in Scripture because we know that God doesn't need our prayer. We know that God doesn't need us. But we also realize that he finds great delight. When we cry out to him. Number three, I want to encourage you to make prayer a priority in your Christian life. And to follow David, David's example to make daily prayer a priority for you. I trust that as you draw near to God in prayer, that you will draw near to the God who hears. Number two, I want you to see secondly that... That as David prays, he comes face to face with the God who is holy. And so I want you to become more acquainted this morning with the God who is holy. And there's a reason for this. First of all, because it appears in the text. And I want you to understand that there's a, 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 an absolutely dangerous shift that has been taking place in the so-called evangelical world. It is a shift that views God in ordinary terms. 
That is a shift that wants to desperately speak about the imminence of God, the so-called nearness of God, and as a result, minimizes the transcendence of God. It is a shift that, in layman's terms, makes God out to be simply one of the guys. God's rad, he's my dad. Right? This is a dangerous shift. We see the shift in books like The Shack. We see the shift in movies like The Shack. We hear it from televangelists. David Wells, for instance, describes the danger of neglecting the transcendence of God. He says it like this. We put all our eggs, so to speak, in the basket of God's nearness or His imminence, His relatedness, and we lose everything related to His otherness and transcendence. This yields a God who is familiar, safe, accommodating, but also very small. Here's what we find. Whenever the creature denies the transcendence of God, that creature dismantles God. He creates a substitute, and he ends up erecting a false vision or portrait of the living God. And this is really what we might consider a a pagan demolition, which is deeply dishonoring to God, and of course leads people down a path that fails to honor God. It's a path that leads, quite simply, to eternal destruction. Whenever we minimize or neglect the transcendence of God, His holiness is always compromised. I want to take a minute and ask the question, what is holiness? This is a massive subject. Now, R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, addresses this. And as I was reviewing this book, I got to thinking, over the years I have been in the habit of telling people that in 50 years, this book will still be in print. No question. In fact, as I was reviewing this, I got to think, uh, I've been reviewing and recommending recent books for you in the last few months. I think this will probably be the read it selection for the month of July. Here's what Dr. Sproul says. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. He continues, when we call things holy, when they are not holy, we commit the sin of idolatry. We give to common things the respect, awe, worship, and adoration that belong only to God. To worship the creature instead of the creator is the essence of idolatry. Well, this is the God that King David finds himself face to face with. This is the God who is holy. And I want you to see in this convicting section of Scripture a holy God's response to sin. Several things I want to highlight, beginning in verse 4. First, I want you to see that God is disgusted with wickedness. He is disgusted with wickedness. Verse 4, For you are not a God, David says, who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That word wickedness comes from the Hebrew term that means evil or Injustice. It means unrighteousness. It involves a class of people who are evil and wicked and who violate a standard. Well, let me ask you, what is the standard that these people are violating? It's the law of God. It's the word of God that they violate. And we see here that God is disgusted 
with wickedness. Number two, in verse 4 also, we see that, that God is diametrically opposed to evil. It's important that you understand in verse 4, if you mark the word evil, that it comes from the strongest Hebrew word for evil in the Old Testament. This is the word ra. There is no higher or more strong word in the Old Testament for evil. And since God is holy, we know that he is completely set apart from anything and everyone that is evil. Additionally, in verse 5, we find that God despises the boastful. The psalmist says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. A boastful person is simply a haughty person. A person who is filled with pride, a person who is filled with arrogance. And of course, we know that God's response to the proud person is not a pretty picture. We see over and over again that, that God opposes the proud man. In 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Psalm 31.23, the psalmist says, Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. I want to ask you this question. Are you numbered among the faithful? If you are numbered among the faithful, by the way, I didn't say the perfectly faithful. I said the faithful, the one who strives to pursue holiness, the one who strives to walk with Jesus. The word of God says that the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Proverbs 8.13 says the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate, I hate. Now we get to verse 5, the last line in verse 5, and we see that, that God detests all evildoers. And we've come to the point where, as Americans, as people in a pluralistic culture, you get to that last few words, the last uh, four words in verse 5 that says, you hate all evildoers. And as Americans, what do we want to do with that? I'll tell you what we want to do with it. We want to skip right over that. Because that is not the God that some of us are accustomed to hearing about. And like a, a good attorney, a good attorney always anticipates objections, right? And so I, I want to play the role of that attorney and, and anticipate some of your objections. Some of you are thinking something like this. Well, Pastor, you're using the English Standard Version. Uh, maybe there's a better translation. And so let's look at what the New American Standard says. It says this, you hate all those who do iniquity. Well, but what about the NIV? You hate all those who do wrong. Let's be a real purist. What about the, the King James Version? Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Yeah, but what about the New Living Translation? Surely the New Living Translation will, will soften it up for us. For you hate all who do evil. You say, well, what's the definition of the Hebrew word for hate? I want you to remember this and mark it closely in your Bible. The Hebrew definition for hate is hate. <laughs> it literally means to scorn. Psalm 11.5, the Lord detests 
The, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, here's the challenge that we're faced with this morning. What are we to make of this? Many of you have turned automatically, and rightly so, to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You say, wait a minute. Verse 5 says, you hate all evildoers. And we know this, that the word of God is inerrant and infallible and authoritative. And so as David pens sacred scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he will never say anything that is contrary to God's holy nature. And so which is it? Frank, you're right with me. Which is it? How do we wrestle with this? Well, I want to take a moment and and linger on this point because I know this is something that many people struggle with. And I want you to remember that hatred in Scripture is directed to both deeds and people. It's directed to deeds and people. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Psalm 139, King David says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I have to be honest with you. This is something that I've wrestled with and labeled, labored over and want to present it in a biblically faithful in God-honoring way. The person that has helped me more than anyone else is John Frame, a theology professor at Westminster Seminary who has since gone to Reformed Theological Seminary and served many, many years there and has just retired. And no one has helped me more than John Frame. And here's what Dr. Frame says. He says that it is not therefore true in every sense that we are to hate the sin but love the sinner. That's what we've kind of been accustomed to saying. He says this, in some senses, God expects us to even hate sinners. But you say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Remember this, hatred does not always refer to hostility. We tend to think hatred, there's this this hostility attached to it. In Genesis 29, we learn this, that Jacob loved Rachel but he hated Leah. Jesus himself calls us to hate our own family, and I hope that helps you, because there's no hostility there, and even our own lives in comparison to our love for him. And even when hatred does include an element of hostility, it should always be understood, and I hope this helps more than anything, hatred from God's perspective should always be understood as a policy of opposition. As a policy of opposition. And so when the Word of God says that God hates wickedness, or in Psalm 5, when he says, you hate all evildoers, this is a policy of opposition. Frame continues. To hate someone is to oppose their goals and to take action, if possible, to prevent them from succeeding. Finally, I want you to realize that hate and love are not incompatible. Hate and love are not incompatible. And so you ask, which is it from God's perspective? As God views unbelievers, does he hate them or love them? And the answer is, yes. Yes. 
Frame says, if love is a disposition to seek the good of someone else and hate is opposition to the plans and values of someone, then it is certainly possible to love and hate the same person. It is possible to hate a member of ISIS, for instance, in the sense that we oppose their objectives and that we are disgusted by their behavior, but at the same time, we desire for every member of ISIS to repent and believe the gospel. I don't know if you've had a chance to wrestle with this before, but when I think of ISIS, it makes me sick. Is anyone else? Or am I the only one? Thank you, Tyler. This is a sick organization. They are, they are murdering people all around the world. But I had to wrestle with this. Do I despise these people? In a biblical sense, you could say yes, that you hate what they do. Why? Because you oppose their plans and their procedures and all their goals. But at the other side of the coin, we love them. We should love the members of ISIS. We hate what they do, but we desire that they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, that just seems totally impossible. I'm sure that there were some Christ followers who, when they looked at Saul, Saul, who became Paul, the former killer of Christians who ends up writing over two-thirds of the New Testament, absolutely unbelievable that God regenerated Saul and he becomes a mighty tool in the hands of the living God. Frame concludes, he says, Before an elect person is converted, God both loves and hates him. God opposes him and prevents him in the long run from achieving his wicked purposes. But, and this is the really good part, God also has glorious blessings in store for him. I think that's the biblical understanding of how we wrestle with this phrase, you hate all evildoers. Number five. We see in verse 6 that God destroys liars. You destroy those who speak lies, verse 6 says. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. That word destroy means to wipe out. It means to perish. And the word lies means a statement that deviates from or perverts the truth. And so to turn from the truth or tarnish the truth are equally sinful and abhorrent in the eyes of God. Number six, also in verse six, that we learn that God is disgusted with bloodthirsty and deceitful people. He is disgusted with bloodthirsty and deceitful people. And as, as I read this section of Scripture... I must confess that it, it is so countercultural than most of than what we're, we're usually used to. Because God's response in the typical American mindset, it sounds judgmental. It sounds exclusive. It sounds, and here's the big word, it sounds so intolerant. And here is why we think in such terms. Here is why we wrestle with passages like this. We are being conditioned. We are being brainwashed in our country to accept without discrimination every lifestyle and every sin and everything that is under the banner of evil or wickedness. 
We have lost the moral high ground and we have forgotten, quite frankly, about a God who is holy, holy, holy. Two principles I want to leave with you. First, learn all you can about the holiness of God. Learn all you can about the holiness of God. I don't know a better book outside of the Word of God than R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. I remember many years ago hearing that Charles Colson, the late Charles Colson, recommends reading this book on one's knees. That's a great recommendation, recommendation, although my knees could never last. Second, I want to encourage you to live in light of the holiness of God. What does that mean? It means think before you watch. It means think before you read. It means run everything you say or do before the reality of God's transcendent holiness. And so David cries out to the God who hears. He cries out to the God who is holy. And finally, he cries out to the God who helps. Verses 7 to 12. I want to just briefly, as we are near the end of our time together this morning, give you a few highlights of this helping God. We've already wrestled through this section where we see that the boastful will not stand before the eyes of God, that God hates all evildoers, but we also learn that He has a a white-hot love for them. And I love the way that David ends this section by highlighting the God who helps. First, verse 7 says that he is a God of steadfast love. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Steadfast love, that is a phrase that means loyal love. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Aren't you glad that God is slow to anger? I know I am. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generation. Verse 8 says that God is also a righteous God. And we know this, that God always leads his people in ways that are consistent with his character. In verse 11, we see that God is our refuge. When we find our refuge in God, the psalmist says we do what? We rejoice because we are safe in his arms. The arms of the God who we learned about in Isaiah 40 loves to gather his sheep, his lambs in his arms. And then finally, verse 12, the psalmist concludes by saying that God is our shield. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And receiving God's help, receiving the help of God, who is our, 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 our maker, our creator, our refuge and our shield, results in a great blessing. One writer says it like this, like a mother eagle would spread her wings of protection over her young. David called for God's protecting love to be shown toward all that had stood with him during this turbulent time. To love God's name is to love the fullness of all he is. Those who truly know him and rejoice in him with hearts that overflow with wonder and praise. I don't know all that you're facing these days. Some of you may have enemies that are making your life unbearable. 
You may be facing persecution in many different ways. Perhaps you are facing an uphill climb with a health issue or an emotional issue issue, or a battle with depression. Perhaps you're, you're wrestling mightily with discouragement or sleeplessness. Perhaps it's a, a wayward child, or perhaps you're, you're looking for a job and you're to the point of desperation, you're to the point of discouragement. Whatever you face this morning, I want to encourage you to, to stand with the psalmist of Psalm 5 and do this. Cry out to God. Cry out to God, to the God who hears. Cry out to God, the God who is holy and the God who helps. At the end of the day, Psalm chapter 5 is an example of, a, of an imperfect man, that is King David, who, who cries out to his God. It is an example of a man who is committed to a, a lofty vision of God, one whose focus is on the supremacy of God, the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God. Here is a man, here is a man who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. Some of you this morning may be on a path that is a wayward path. It's an evil path. It's a wicked path. You've been living in rebellion against God. You have willfully turned away from his righteous rule, and this passage has cut you to the quick. Today you may realize that you stand as an enemy of God. You realize that apart from his grace, apart from his mercy, that you will, you will bear the weight of all your sin in hell for all eternity. What is the hope for such an ungodly person. Will you turn to one final passage with me? To Romans chapter 5. And as you turn to Romans chapter 5, I want to challenge two kinds of people. First, I want to encourage the, the person who is not a Christian. The person who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And ask, what kind of hope is there for you who stand before a God who has turned his face from you, whose wrath will fall on you for, for all eternity for your sin. What kind of hope is there for you? And the second kind of person is the rest of you, and that is if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to remember and to, to drink deeply of the hope that you enjoy on this day because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 5, beginning of verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I want to break there for just a minute, and I want to ask, if you're not a Christian today, I want you to remember that the Word of God says you are ungodly, you are wicked, you are evil, and here is the hope. Insert your name here. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you are a Christ follower today, I want to encourage you to to remember those words and to to rejoice in the hope that is yours in Christ. If you are not yet a Christ follower, my admonition to you, my plea with you today is you need to cry out to God for salvation. Cry out to the God who does indeed have a white hot love for you. You say, but wait, I don't deserve it. That would be correct. None of us deserve it. We as the people of God, we need to cry out to our maker. We need to cry out to our creator as we get to know, as we become more and more acquainted with the God who hears, with the God who is holy and the God who helps. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this God-centered vision uh, from the pen of your servant, David. God, we have wrestled with some heavy, heavy theology this morning as we are not only faced with the kinds of things you hate, but also the kinds of things that you love. God, I pray that we would hold these things in tension, that we would always have a a biblical vision of who you are based on uh, the God that we find painted in sacred scripture. God, I pray that you would encourage your people, first of all, I pray that you would fill them with, their, with your spirit. I pray that you would uh, grant relief, that you would give them mercy, that you would br- grant encouragement in whatever they're going through today. And I want to have each of you today, if you're a Christian, take this moment to cry out to God. Whatever it is that is happening in your life, would you cry out to God and ask him for help? And God, in the quietness of this moment, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you that you hear us. We thank you that you listen. We thank you that you are eager to hear our prayers. We confess that you are the holy God of Israel, that you have a deep desire to help your people, to be their refuge, to be their rock, to be their deliverer, to shower them with steadfast love. And then there's a second kind of person I want to challenge if you are not a follower of Jesus and have, have come to the point where you are cut to the quick and you realize that you stand guilty before a holy God. Would you cry out to him? Would you cry out and admit that you are a sinner? Would you admit to God that you have, you have broken his law, that you have walked in a way that is, has not been pleasing to him? And would you cry out and ask on the basis of all that Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, based on his life and his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the grave, that he would save you from your sins, that he would forgive you, that he would restore you, that he would reconcile you to a holy God, that he would redeem you from the slave market of sin. Would you cry out and say, Oh God, I don't really know the correct words. I don't know how to pray, but I do know I'm a sinner, and I ask that you would deliver me, save me from my sin, make me a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now, God, I pray that you'd mark these things on our hearts today, that you'd leave us with fresh encouragement and the power of your word through the, through the means of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.